0: Father, we come to you expectant this morning, because you love to speak, and so would you soften our hearts to hear your voice. And we pray
1: these things in your Son's name. Amen. I'm aware as we... Um, Begin this morning, there's a breadth of people in the room, lots of you are visiting us and so I want to give you a bit of a background to to show you what we're doing and maybe something of why we're doing it but also for the rest of us as a reminder um, of what we're doing and why. Um, You've joined us just over halfway through a topical series which is a a slightly different thing for us at Road. Normally we will work our way through books of the Bible or sections of books of the Bible but at the moment we're thinking a bit more topically why. Well partly in in a fractious world we are Aware that we're not very good at listening to people who don't agree with us, or loving people who are not like us, and so we're asking, how can we get better at that? How can we recognise the inherent dignity, value, worth of people, um, and treat them accordingly? Um, But then on a slightly different angle as well, secondly, why is it that churches so often end up being full of the same kind of people? Mono-educational, mono-ethnic, mono-economic. And so we're doing this little series partly because we see it as a theme in the scriptures. We want to read our Bibles well. We want to understand what God says about ethnicity and difference and that kind of stuff so to understand God's plan for his world and where we fit in but also we're aware as well that our our communities are changing that there is lots of movement and migration there are refugees there's just a fluidity of people And so it's not just that we want to read our Bibles well, we want to love our neighbours well as well. Whether locally or nationally or internationally, there's there's lots of discord. And so we're thinking, how can we better love and care for those around us? We saw last week Oxford, at its heart, has a number of deep-rooted city-wide divides. There's Town Town and Gown, of course, that's a key one for us in this region. But also, Oxford is changing. The neighbourhoods and the workplaces are changing, which means our opportunities for friendship, for conversation, for mission, are changing. And because we trust our sovereign God, so we, not, we don't assume it's by accident those things are happening. And because we trust our sovereign God, so we want to love those people whom he is bringing into our orbits. Which means this movement of people necessarily raises questions for us. How, maybe rethinking our individual friendships. Are there people in our kind of little worlds whom we ought to love better? It raises questions for us as a church. What does it mean to be a church in a pretty multicultural patch? How can we better love, engage with, reach those in this area? Particularly, we pray, as we seek to acquire a new building. I can say, do keep praying for that. It's been a positive week in those terms. We hope to tell you more soon. And actually, what's striking is we hit this week and next week in Acts and then Romans next week. There may be some hard questions that we are left wrestling with at the end of it, some conversations that we need to have as we think through how we do church. Um, so if you've shut your Bibles, please do open them again. We are in. Um, We're in Acts generally, particularly chapter 11 and 13, but we will kind of dot back to one and a bit in eight as well. Um, In the first chapter of Acts, you might well be aware that it gives us something of a, or Luke gives us something of a contents page, an outline of how things are going to pan out. Or perhaps better, the risen Jesus gives us. An outline of the, how things are going to pan out. So if you've got your um, Burgundy Bibles, page 1092, Acts chapter 1, and let me just read a little bit for us um, to reorientate us with what's going on in Acts. Reading from verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speak about, for John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, "It's, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're let in on what's going to happen. There are these concentric rings moving out from where they are, from starting off in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. The, the rock drops in the pond and the ripples flow out. And we say, well, when's this going to happen, Jesus? He says, well, when they receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes. I think that's really good news, because at this point in the story, that kind of mission strategy is kind of pretty unlikely to work. The disciples so far have been, well, it's all a bit awkward. He's had to be very patient with them. They have denied him, they've misunderstood him, they've not grasped his mission. Even their question here about restoring the kingdom to Israel shows they are still not on the same page. But then with these disciples, something extraordinary happens in them. It totally changes them, which then sets up the rest of the book. It's not just a flash in the pan, but forever they are changed. Where they were fearful, now there's courage. Where they were foolish, now there's wisdom. Where there was cowardice and denial, now there is audacity and boldness. Where there was misunderstanding, now they get it. And we say, how does that happen? Well, I take it it's not some kind of mass hallucination or wishful thinking through tear-filled eyes. No, Jesus promises they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and it changes their lives forever. So it's just pulling into a lay by there and saying, for me, that is an incredibly powerful apologetic for the truth of the gospel. That is, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not quite sure where you stand on stuff, don't miss the transformation that has happened in these men. It's not through years of therapy on the psychiatrist's couch. It's not some kind of boosted self-esteem. It's not them whistling in the dark, sticking to their story, even, they know it, even though they know it's not really true, because it makes them feel a bit more able to cope in the big bad world. No, they are totally different. They are transformed overnight. They ran off before Jesus before, and, and they hid. Now, church history tells us, all but one of them will be killed for their faith. No, no one dies for a lie. And so I'd say, what's your take on them, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer? What's your answer for lives that have been transformed in such an extraordinary way like this? I take it the fruit of their work is here this morning. Millions of Christians meeting around the globe today. And so he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." And that happens. It might not have happened in the way that we would have expected or they would have planned for it, but it happens nonetheless. It's remarkably organic. And so flick ahead again to chapter 11 that was read for us, page 1105 if you have a church Bible. You see the message ringing out from Jerusalem to um, Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Let me read to us again from um, 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So verse 20, you see the message has reached Antioch now. The ripple has moved from the centre out to Antioch. How has it got there? Not through some pre-planned evangelistic strategy. Not through sitting down with maps and praying and agendas. No, it's as if God's people have taken the message with them because they were running for their lives. So verse 19, see, Stephen was stoned outside the city walls of Jerusalem. That's end of Acts 7. And then start of Acts 8, we read, all except the apostles were scattered. So do you see, persecution begins. And the message spreads. And that's how we arrive, Acts 11. And Antioch matters. Antioch matters because Antioch is Syria. And if you like, this is the first taste of to the ends of the earth. This is that bit of the plan coming into action. Now, history tells us um, Antioch Antioch was an extraordinary city. It was the third largest city in the world at the time, part of the Roman Empire. Nearly half a million people lived there. And when it was founded, um, end of 4th century B.C., Apparently, the city was divided into two primary sections. There was a bit for the Syrians and a bit for the Greeks. That there was a literal wall that divided them. Hey, walls to keep people out. It's topical, isn't it? But a city of division from the beginning was Antioch. Fast forward a bit and you reach Roman rule. And you've got all the mobility and movement that Rome brought. You've got roads and trade and communications. And Antioch at that point then is made up of at least 18 different ethnic groups. Which includes Syrians, Romans, Greeks, Persians, Armenians, Parthians, Cappadocians, Jews. Which meant because of the ethnic diversity in the city, social integration was really difficult. And Roman cities in part because of this, we're prone to riots. So it's a huge city, but a very diverse city. I wonder if as we look around our world and we see these huge urban centres, increasingly so, the diversity of people in our cities. Maybe there's not riots there, but often there's strife and discord. Maybe we need to spend more time in Antioch to see how how they did it to see perhaps how that would shape how we ought to do it. We are increasingly urban, we are increasingly diverse, and it'll only get more. Actually, they reckon today 54% of the world's population live in urban centres. That's expected to grow to about two thirds by 2050. Or even to look at Oxford. We may not have riots like in Roman cities of the time, but there can really be rivalry and discord. We're tribal. Are you Botley or Barton or Blackbird Leaves? Are you Lee Valley or Littlemore? Are you city centre or Summertown? Are you town or gown? What secondary school did you go to? Was it a comp or was it a private school? And yet what's striking as you look at Antioch is that this was the first time these people were called Christians. Did you get that? Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he found him he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We'll see in a bit it was a mixed church, but I think we can't just discount it as one of those sort of diverse churches where that was just their sort of thing, you know? No, no, this is a church that had been taught by Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, the encourager, goes to look for Saul from Tarsus, the theologian, the expert in the scriptures, quite the combo. And then verse 26, for a whole year they, they teach, great numbers of people it says, and you see, this is not a church then built on some kind of social agenda. You know, yours is a church that's got a great focus on music. Yours is a church that loves fair trade. Yours is a church that does discipleship well. Yours is about mission. Yours is about diversity. You no, know, I take it because they were grounded in the scriptures. While well, so they apply the gospel. And so reconciliation happens. Isn't that striking? Here they are called Christians for the first time. Have you ever asked yourself why that is? I take it it's not just a nice, nice fact to have in our back pocket to wow people at parties with or if ever you're inflicted upon with kind of Bible trivia board games, apologies to people in the room. Why were they called Christians? Well surely it's because they couldn't be categorized easily in an urban centre full of different people groups who seemingly kept themselves to themselves except for a bit of a, a row and a riot from time to time. To so the rest of the locals looking in at the church, it's confusing, who are these people? How, how, do we, how do we relate to them? Here are people who mix across and beyond the local normal boundaries. Here are people who are diverse and yet united. You, you don't see that. What do we call them? And so they make up a word, they call them Christians, those who follow Christ. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in, on one of those teaching sessions from Paul and Barnabas to, to sit through what they were doing? What, what resulted in the church being so mixed? What resulted in all kinds of people ending up hearing about Jesus And this extraordinary church being born, we'll see more of it in a moment. Maybe some of the Old Testament scriptures that we've been thinking about over the last few weeks, maybe Genesis 1, we're all made in God's image. We're commanded to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to rule it, to look after it, to make it fruitful to spread out and yet they find themselves in chapter 11 and they are settling and they are seeking to build a name for themselves. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? And then God confuses and scatters them out to Genesis 12 and you've got the promise to Abraham. Through his family, all nations will be blessed. And then in on their teaching to to Jesus as well, he was the answer to Abraham. Maybe he was teaching that. Or maybe even some of the oral tradition being passed down that we end up with in the Gospels. You know, maybe he told a story about this extraordinary expert university professor who came to Jesus at night, part of the establishment, part of the in crowd, part of the elite, educated, sharp, top of the tree, a man called Nicodemus. But then the next story, Jesus goes to an excluded woman who's seeking to fill her life and find her life in all the wrong kinds of things, all the wrong kinds of places, a social outcast. And Jesus came for all kinds of people. Maybe that's some of the stuff they were saying. We don't know exactly. We just see the fruit of their teaching. And so I want you to flick on to chapter 13. And just to note two things in particular about the kind of global nature of this church. If you like, that was all introduction. Let's get into chapter 13. And just two simple observations, really. The first is that it was a global leadership. You're on page 1107 with me. Acts 13 and verse one. Now in in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five men mentioned. But as different from each other as perhaps you can conceive. Luke doesn't just tell us their names, he tells us where they came from. Isn't that interesting? It's as if, for a long term gain over short term benefit, perhaps, in the early stages of church life in Antioch, the congregation picked a very diverse leadership team. Isn't that striking? That seems to be what they are, these prophets and teachers. Let me just unpack each of them a bit for you. Um, You will be aware of Paul and Barnabas. We know them slightly better, don't we? Luke doesn't tell us here, but elsewhere we know that Paul was from the Roman city of Tarsus. That's in Asia Minor. And Barnabas was from Cyprus. Both of them were Jews raised outside Palestine, thoroughly immersed in a Greek culture. Cross-cultural missionaries in many ways, both were bilingual able to speak Aramaic and Greek. And yet, interestingly, they were both familiar with and fluent in the traditions of Jerusalem. So do you remember Saul, later Paul? Um, he has his schooling years in Jerusalem under the watchful eye of Gamaliel, who was sort of premier league rabbi at the time. Would have been a privilege. And then you get this Menaean guy. He grew up in the household of Herod Antipas, we're told a kind of stepbrother of some sort, presumably privileged pedigree, access to money, to education, to opportunity. But then don't forget Herod Antipas was the one, the notorious one, who, because he married his brother's wife, John the Baptist spoke out against it and ended up beheaded. And it was him as well who sent Jesus back to Pilate to have him executed. Maybe Menaean isn't the kind of person we would expect to be responding to the gospel, or particularly in leadership. Then you get Lucius of Cyrene, he came from North Africa, near present-day Libya, that would be. something. maybe he was one of the first guys who came to the area with the gospel when they were persecuted and dispersed. And then you get this Simeon called Niger, which is a kind of Latinism for black. To put it bluntly, he was most likely a black African. Possibly he originated from the sort of sub-Saharan West African region of a similar name now. But it's a very diverse leadership team, isn't it? If you read the church planting manuals, this would go against lots of the perceived wisdom. The kind of united core team of similar people. Luke Luke doesn't want us to miss their diversity. Just imagine being a fly on the wall in their early leadership meetings. Different backgrounds, worldviews, mindsets, personalities, histories, interacting together, The, the apologies that had to follow the no doubt cultural faux pas, misunderstanding of words, of translations, of ways of doing things, getting used to being reconciled striking isn't it why is it so diverse we say i'm not told exactly why luke didn't need to give us their details but he seems to do it because he's got some kind of agenda some kind of some kind of thing that he's going for the stuff i've read seems to agree that it is a diverse leadership for a diverse people A diverse leadership, to reach a diverse city. And maybe we say, well, come on, this is just descriptive. This is how they did it there and then for that time. And I think that's fair. I don't want to say this is prescriptive. This isn't Luke saying you must do it this way. But there must be cause for us to stop and think. As if Luke maybe is urging us to join the dots. And in our increasingly diverse cities, maybe Antioch and the way they seemed to do things, maybe it needs to have more of an impact than it does. Now, you can only bring into leadership those with appropriate character and gifting, of course. Those who are in your church, of course. But then maybe there's more of a wisdom element when it comes to the mix of people that we need to consider as we raise people to leadership. That will apply to personality and temperament, but there seems to be a deliberate diversity here in Antioch that maybe in our diverse cities we need to get to grips with a bit more. I wonder if Antioch has got more to say to us than perhaps it's given credit for imagine imagine the watching world talking of this church in Antioch, you know, and they click onto the sort of proverbial website. If, such things existed in those days and you click on the what we believe tab and it sort of talks about the gospel of Jesus and grace and forgiveness and mercy and
0: um,
1: being friends with God again because our sin is dealt with as Jesus dies on the cross. It talks about reconciliation with God and because we have a reconciliation with God then a reconciliation with each other and you're, you're there on the website and you kind of click onto the the people section, and then there's staff, or leadership. And you go, goodness. Goodness, they actually mean it. Wow.
0: It's striking, isn't it?
1: Will you pray for us in this? I think this is quite challenging for churches. I find this case study of Antioch makes me feel uncomfortable. and we do have a level of diversity in the room, in our eldership. But this is on a different level. One of the things we're hoping to do over the next few months, and Richard Weston will be helping us engage with this, is to make contact with some of the other churches in Oxford, of whom there are many, who aren't like us. Just prayerfully forming friendships. Stepping out of our comfort zones a bit. Getting to know people. Seeing what we can learn from people. Seeking to... Better have that diversity and unity. So, first thing then to say a a global leadership for a global people or a global city. The second thing, just to note as well as we begin to draw to a close, is that they have a global heart. And I think it is telling that it is from this church, it is this church that becomes the kind of catalyst for mission around the world. It radiates out of here. This is the church that sent Paul and Barnabas off. So verse 2, chapter 13 and verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now it's almost an aside that the they, I think in verse 2, is most likely the leadership That's the most simple reading. It refers back to verse 1. It is the leadership who are worshipping the Lord and fasting and praying, as if that were a usual thing. And God speaks to them by his Holy Spirit, and that is tantalising. We don't exactly for sure know what that means, or how that happens, or what they heard. But we do know what they do about it. They fast and they pray again, and then there's more of, I think, a sort of corporate church action as they lay hands on them and send them off, and off they go. And we could say all kinds of things here. One of the things we know as as a church in Oxford is, is the way this city works and the way you say goodbye to people. The cost of sending people, the reality of saying goodbye as you, as you lose dearly loved friends. Maybe even the pain of losing leadership. Maybe we can spend some more time on that in home groups, but for now... Just zoom in on the idea that it was this multi-ethnic local church in urban Antioch that took the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Maybe in Antioch they had practiced contextualization, that is, communicating the message of Jesus into diverse cultures, because Antioch was full of diverse cultures. They had had to do the work thinking about what is this message and Who are these people and how do we take this message to these people? Because that was the reality of Antioch. And that message then rings out from them around the world. It's not the mother church in Jerusalem that sends Paul and Barnabas. Not the place of power, if you like. But it was Antioch, a church who understood the world because it was made up of the world. And that results in what we would call the first of many of Paul's missionary journeys. And the gospel is still going and still spreading to the ends of the earth.
0: I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, we say that we we love you.
1: And we thank you for the work you've done in our lives. And so we pray that you would help us to be better at loving our neighbours.
0: Help us to work out what that means for
1: each of us day to day, week by week. But help us please to work out what that means for us as a church.
0: In this increasingly diverse city, might we be a community
1: of people who who have that diversity and yet that unity. We thank you for Antioch. We pray that we would take from the church in Antioch what you would want us to take from it.
0: Lord, if there are principles,
1: if there are challenges, then please lay them on our hearts. We confess that we aren't always great at listening.
0: And we long to be obedient. And so be at work, we pray. In Jesus' name.